Dear friends, it's my pleasure to welcome you all to our conference on terrorism, global and in Latin America. Terrorist events in Europe in recent days bring to mind the various faces this phenomenon presents. Borders are erased, intelligence seldom is 100% correct, and while terrorists from all over the world spring out in cities unprepared for such an assault, at the end of the day, there are many, too many, innocent victims laying dead on roads and public expanses like Ramla in Barcelona. In today's world, nobody in Europe, the United States, or Latin America can rest assured that he or she will be exempted from becoming a victim of the present assault on civilization. I recall that many years ago, I had to travel frequently to South America for reasons of my work with the IMF. Those were the years of the Tricontinental Conference held in Cuba under the leadership of Fidel Castro. I'd like to call him El Padrino, the Godfather, Fidel Castro, which gathered terrorists from all around the world. The Palestinian Arafat was there, as well as Latin American, European, African, and Middle Eastern figures of terrorism. This conference was supposed to mark a renaissance of the dark forces of so-called political crime all around the world. Although those years are well past, we're not allowed to forget that today's Latin America and the world suffer a serious and dangerous source of global terrorism in Venezuela. Venezuela suffering at the hands of a brutal dictator and the valiant struggle for freedom being waged in the, in, the Carac in the streets of Caracas and all over the country by the oppressed Venezuelan people. Not long ago, Colombia faced this horrific threat. And today, other nations in South America are in open war against such dangers. I'm sure we will learn a great deal from the expert speakers gathered here this afternoon. Take a look at their respective background in the end program. They inspire respect because of their knowledge and experience in this area. They will speak in the same order they are seated, starting with Ambassador Javier Ruperes followed by Javier Lesaca and Don Gustavo Tarre here next to me. Allow me to thank Ms. Rachel Cox, our Director of Public Events, for her key role in bringing this conference about. My personal special recognition to Dr. John Walters for his guidance in making possible this series of conferences on Latin America. Now, when the three distinguished speakers complete their presentations, 
we will have the opportunity to ask questions. And without no further ado, I turn the podium to Ambassador Perez. Thank you very much, Ambassador Darren Brun, and thank you very much for the Hudsonicity to give us this opportunity to discuss about uh, terrorism in Latin America and probably all around the world. Uh, I would like to start by uh, making a couple of remarks concerning the, the perception and the reality of, of terrorism. Uh, it is true that right now in Latin America, in the hemisphere, the, it doesn't exist, the perception of a terrorist threat, of immediate terrorist threat. And uh, it's true also that as a consequence, the vast majority of governments in Latin America, and probably probably all of them right now, do not have that immediate perception of a threat of terrorism. Or they don't want to show it, which is one possibility, or they prefer not to talk about it. Uh, it's true that as far as governments are, are concerned, it's, not, it's never popular to announce the threat of anything, in particular the threat of terrorism. And it's also true that after all, governments have to take care of uh, the moment when they announce the possibilities of problems facing their community, because you have to be extremely careful about when dealing with reality and uh, when dealing with reality beyond propaganda. But uh, this is also true, that uh, this is these are not the times of the Iranian terrorist attacks in uh, Buenos Aires against uh, Jewish interests, both uh, against the Israeli embassy and against the AMIA. You remember both in 1992 and 1994, both with a terrible, a terrible uh, number of people dead and injured. It's true that these are not the times of the Chupamaros in Argentina, of the Montonero, of the Chupamaros in Uruguay, of the Argentinian Montoneros, or the Colombian FARC, although I will make a number of uh, uh, remarks concerning the Colombian situation right now, or the Salvadorian FMLN, or the Peru, or Bolivia. It's true, these are not those rather complicated times. Uh, but we have to remember that all those times uh, corresponded to what I would consider to be the definition of terrorism. Uh, I was working for the United Nations for a period of time, and one of the problems we have to face there is that there is not an UN-agreed definition of terrorism. But at the same time, this is a sort of the elephant in the room. Uh, we do not know, we do not need the definition of terrorism to know what terrorism is about. And uh, my own personal, it could be several definitions of terrorism, but my own ter personal definition of terrorism is the violence which is perpetrated by non-state actors using violence with the purpose of, of achieving political objectives through terror in the population. And uh, that applies to any sort of terrorism, be it uh, AMIA, be it uh, Montoneros, be it uh, the ETA in Spain, and many other examples. So whatever uh, opinion, ideas, 
uh, appreciations we might have of the claim objectives of the terrorism. This is what terrorism is about, is to generate terror with political objectives, with violence within a given population. But we have to take into account as well some of the factors which might eventually generate terrorist threats or actions. Uh, first of all, and speaking specifically about Latin America, we have to take into account the, the level of criminal violence, of common criminal violence in some Latin American countries. And we have to recognize that some countries, even in the whole of the continent or the hemisphere, that level is extremely high, unfortunately extremely high. Uh, just two facts to uh, remember and to take into account. With only 10% of the, of the territory, of the global territory, of the world, world territory in Latin America, 50% of all the criminal-induced uh, violence is taking place in Latin America. Remember, 10% on one side, 50% on the other. And uh, just to, to name a couple of figures corresponding to 2016, in Venezuela, last year, there were 29,000 crimes. And by crimes, I mean violent deaths. In Brazil, which certainly the proportion is not exactly the same given the level the different level of population were 26,000. 29,000 people being killed through criminal violence in Venezuela in 2016 and uh, 26 in Brazil. And it is also a fact that the systemic spread of violence weakens enormously the social and political structures of the countries involved, giving rise to what we call the failed states, where everything becomes possible, everything bad becomes possible, including, including the appearance of terrorism. And at present, we can think about the cases of El Salvador, of uh, Honduras, or some Caribbean island states, and all those cases come very easily to the mind. If you listen to the uh, people taking care of the Salvadoran affairs and they, uh, how they describe the situation in the country, you could come to the conclusion that after all, that country, if not already there, is very near to become what I would consider to be a failed state. It is also known the fact that the frontier between criminal violence and terrorism is always very much blurred. Uh, we, for instance, could think about the FARC in Colombia, and uh, which uh, up to a point they are the best example of that paradigm, politically motivated terrorists who at the same time thrived in drug trafficking and common criminality. Uh, what is the difference? What is the frontier? What is the border between the two cases? Um, in uh, precisely the last, I think it was last week, uh, Vice President Pence was visiting several uh, Latin American countries, and when he was visiting Buenos Aires, he had to say the threat of terror still looms across our hemisphere, and we will stand together to confront it and protect our own people from it. And so, too, must we stand together to defeat the most immediate threat to Latin America's security and prosperity, the menace of transnational crime. 
he was right to point out that after all the two things come together, unfortunately, they are very closely uh, related. And so that we know criminal gangs existing and active in Venezuela, in Brazil, in Chile, in Peru, in Uruguay, in El Salvador, in Honduras, in Mexico, and in Guatemala. And probably I uh, forget some of those countries, but this is what we know about criminal violence in the hemisphere. Moreover, um, Latin America is not and will not be isolated from other international realities, uh, in particular those today pointing out to the threat embodied in so-called Islamic terrorism or jihadi terrorism or violent extremism. In my uh, presentation, in my words, I wouldn't make any difference between all those things. I, I do not pay necessarily attention to the names, they are all the same. Um, uh, and uh, believe me, there is no insult addressed to the, the Muslim populations, the people with the uh, Muslim Islamic faith. It's quite obvious that the vast majority of the Muslim population around the world are not uh, terrorists. But it's quite obvious at the same time that those uh, claiming acts of violence and of terrorism in the name of Allah all those claim to belong to the some safe. So we have to take into account the two factors just to when to address this uh, phenomenon. All the jihadi terrorists claim to belong to the Islamic faith. And then we have a number of facts. Uh, ISIS, the Islamic State, Daesh, is losing the battle, is losing the war in Syria and in Iraq. But certainly not all of the members of the uh, ISIS have been killed, not all of them have disappeared. Uh, and uh, one star wonders where are they? And the security services, the intelligence services, right now have started to uh, use the idea of the squeeze of the lemon. Whenever you squeeze a lemon, you get the best part of the juice, but at the same time, you get a number of drops, which are rather difficult to control. You don't know exactly what the drops are going to, to appear. So when squeezing the lemon of ISIS in uh, Iraq and in Syria, we already know that quite a number of drops have uh, already appeared in Afghanistan. Quite a number of drops have appeared in Libya, in Nigeria, in Mali, in other sub-Saharan countries. We already know, unfortunately, that quite a number of those drops have appeared in European countries, and we in Spain know about that because of the extremely recent and extremely sudden tragic events in, in Barcelona. So we have to try and imagine where all those drops are going to be found, and certainly when thinking about America, whether some drops could be in some of the countries of the hemisphere, because, after all, if those drops have been looking for refuge and finding refuge in base in Africa and uh, in Asia, why in Europe, why not to look for refuge in Latin America? And uh, this is one of the things that we have to bear in mind right now. And uh, then we have a number of facts we have to take into consideration because of the new and old Muslim uh, uh, Middle communities are to be found in Venezuela, quite a number of them. Uh, as a matter of fact, we already know that uh, the government of Mr. Maduro has granted around 10,000 
uh, Venezuelan visas to uh, Iranian uh, citizens. We know the case of Uruguay, where uh, some years back, six members of the Taliban who were fighting against uh, uh, the European, the, the American forces, the NATO forces in Afghanistan, were uh, were sent to Uruguay. Those six people now have multiplied by ten. There are more than sixty people belonging to the same groups, families, communities, living in Uruguay. They found accommodation there. I wouldn't claim, I wouldn't uh, make sure that they are all terrorists, but this is one of the factors we have to bear in mind. And uh, then we uh, find a number of similar communities in Brazil, in Paraguay, in Argentina, in the three border area, you know, that area which puts together Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay, which uh, uh, is uh, has become a world known hub for illicit activities of all kinds and a constant worry for national and international authorities in the fight against terrorism and in the fight against transnational criminality. Um, so, again, where are the drops? Uh, where have they fallen after the lemon has been squeezed? Uh, it's not logical to presume that those drops have fallen everywhere, but in Latin America. Then, well, remember the AMIA. Nobody knows that the AMIA were going to take place. Nobody knows that, nobody knew that uh, the, the attacks against all those uh, uh, Jewish interests were going to take place. Uh, we have to remember, at the same time, the case of the, uh, of the Nisman, the prosecutor. Nisman was obviously killed because he was about to uh, discover and to present to the Argentinian parliament the results of his investigation concerning who was behind those uh, killings, those uh, bombings in, in Buenos Aires in the 1990s. Uh, we have to remember the dormant cells uh, who are practically all over the place right now, radical, being inspired by radical extremism. Though not necessarily, and we know something about that, not necessarily directly in uh, directed in an operative way by the ISIS people. Again, the Barcelona is very much the case in point. It's rather, and, or the Paris, or the Nice, or the London cases, it's not that clear that there was a direct instruction or, or direction being given to those terrorists by ISIS. So there is a process of radicalization which is being induced by a number of actions through the, the, the social media, which is uh, something Javier Lezaka is going to talk to us about. So the process of radicalization within Islamic communities around the world is becoming something to take into account, and certainly something to take into account always uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in Latin America. I would say that unfortunately this is a rather safe bet, somehow or rather uh, in some of those uh, Muslim communities in Latin America, radicalization is taking place as well. So we have to think about the readiness and reactions to that uh, reality. And we have to think about what I would consider to be the basic code of conduct by uh, communities, civil societies, governments uh, in, the, in the fight against terrorism. Uh, I would start by saying, well, you have to admit that there is a possibility of terrorist activities. You have to develop your own intelligence in both ways, the operative intelligence and the intelligence as such. 
you have to uh, develop a significant degree of national and regional security bodies. You have to have a good police. You have to develop and you have to play the role and within the international cooperation. And from that viewpoint, I think that the United Nations, not only the United Nations, but the United Nations will could play a very could play a very useful role. You have to improve your legislative response. You have to have laws which contemplate specifically the case of terrorism, which is not to be considered similar to criminal activity, something else, something serious. They have to uh, be contemplated under the legislative reforms. You have to develop a significant degree of border control. Uh, you have to have a way to look into the documents of the people crossing the borders. And you have to be uh, to be aware that there are a number of international and national financial controls which are extremely, indeed, vital, absolutely vital in the fight against terrorism through the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, which is one of the main bodies following all the, all the financial activities which go to, to the financing of terrorism. And we have some particular cases which I will address briefly. I think that uh, both Argentina and Uruguay have been significantly improving their own actions against terrorism in recent times. I think that Brazil uh, lacks uh, a what I would consider to be the significant degree of focus on terrorism. In some instances, the Brazilian authorities do not want to accept the idea that they might be the object of terrorist attacks. I'm sometimes, and I, uh, I notice that uh, the international authorities are rather concerned, worried about the lack of action on the part of the Brazilian authorities in the three border area with Argentina and Paraguay. Paraguay is suffering, obviously, from shortage of means, and that, that should be taken to ground by Paraguayan authorities when the international cooperation. There is an absolute lack of control in Venezuela. Uh, I will uh, deal with uh, the details of that. Uh, and, uh, for instance, one of the things that uh, the people, the countries belonging to UNASUR, have to take into account the fact that uh, all the uh, citizens of those countries can move along the borders without any significant degree of control, any, indeed, any uh, control. And there are, there are a number of countries involved in UNASUR, Ecuador, Colombia, Chile, Venezuela, Argentina, Bolivia, Guyana, Paraguay, Peru, Uruguay, Suriname, and Brazil, uh, with Mexico and Panama as observers. And there is, for instance, an absolute lack of control, or rather significant lack of control in the border between Guatemala and Mexico. Uh, when uh, watching what is happening in this country right now and following what is coming from uh, uh, from the from the White House and from the authorities here? Uh, well, you whatever you may think about those actions, well, you uh, you realize that they are very much concerned about the control between the border between Mexico and the United States. Well, I would be rather concerned about the control in the border between Guatemala and Mexico as well. And uh, as I pointed out before, the criminal violence in El Salvador. And Honduras is beyond the pale, beyond what I would consider to be a normal state of affairs and extremely uh, worrying up to the point where uh, the possibility of the failed state appear is not that uh, remote. Uh, after all, when one's look at the phenomenon of the Salvadorian matters, uh, 
and uh, one starts to wonder whether there is not the seat of the powerful and destabilizing terror movement in those uh, criminal activities. We could have, uh, we could look into some other cases of criminal activities, for instance, if you are arrested and take us a long time. Uh, uh, I think it's uh, the Colombians and the Equatorians have uh, the obligation to look into the problems in the common frontier. Uh, so there are some of the cases that we, we have to consider. And finally, I would like to say a couple of things about Colombia, the case of Colombia. Um, you know, the length and uh, the violence of the conflict in Colombia took years, thousands of lives, thousands of losses of all sorts, up to a point where people could start thinking, was that a civil war? Was that a conflict between two equal and, and parallel sides? Or was it a case of entrenched terrorist groups fighting against the state? Uh, I would personally prefer the last of the definitions, probably with elements of the other two, uh, because after all, with such a long conflict and such a violent conflict, a number of elements, of different elements were, were, were present there. But certainly that was a case of entrenched terrorist groups fighting against the state for the number of years. And, uh, um, but I, as I mentioned before, uh, those terrorists were moving either on the criminal side or on the political terrorist side. And the Colombian government has dealt with, uh, with it following the model of a civil war which uh, needs some sort of negotiation to, uh, to, uh, to meet the requests of all the sides. And, uh, and uh, from that viewpoint, uh, the Colombian government, and I, I wouldn't uh, like to, to make any judgment on what they did or how they did it, because after all, it's very much up to the Colombians to decide upon their own, their own national affairs. But uh, they didn't want to hear very much from international organizations, in particular for the United, from the United Nations. The United Nations has been, and I again respect the rights of all the countries to do whatever they feel like doing with their own, their own system, but the United Nations was uh, uh, very clearly kept aside, kept apart from the blueprint of that negotiation. And... Uh, uh, I know very well that uh, the United Nations officials complained about that opacity that the Colombian authorities have kept in that respect. But when thinking about the Colombian case, and when thinking about all the cases of terrorism which might eventually affect uh, Latin America or, or any other uh, region or country in the world, I, I think that we have to bear in mind some rules of behavior which are absolutely basic. The first one is that terrorists should not have any impunity. That's the basic rule. Uh, if terrorists are granted impunity, that's an invitation to continue with terrorism. The second point is that uh, a very specific role should be given to the victims as the examples of the suffering which has been induced by terrorism, at the same time the need to try and help them socially and even economically in their own suffering. And the third point, which is obviously that well, is that you have to have the rule of law as the basic principle of the governing of terrorism or any other activity in 
So the notion of uh, uh, transitional justice is something which doesn't square very well with the idea of the rule of law. It doesn't square very well with the idea that no impunity should be given to terrorists. Uh, the idea that uh, indiscriminated pardon should be given to former terrorists. The idea that the victims are being forgotten or hidden in, uh, in the post-conflict. Uh, the idea that uh, there is some ways to circumvent the process of the rule of law. The idea that uh, violence could be a price is extremely, extremely dangerous for the keeping of peace, stability, democracy, prosperity, whichever you may call it. In the end, I will draw some uh, conclusions. Uh, we do not have anywhere in the world 100% security that we are free from terrorism. There is not such a thing as absolute security, among other things, because we have to try and balance which is the price between security and liberty, as we all very well know. I know very well that the willful ignorance of the threat is a sure way, is a sure way to disaster. So even trying to go a bit further on doesn't make any harm. Uh, better to be well prepared and nothing happening than not to be prepared at all. The weaker the societies in their own political, economic, and social structures, the higher the risk they suffer from terrorism. That's another thing we have to take into account. The Latin American countries need in general to develop a better, stronger, and more determined attitude in face of eventual terrorist threats. And that should be a consequence of their determination to join forces to achieve a more prosperous, democratic, and just state of affairs. I sincerely believe that there is still time to that. Thank you very much for your presence and your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, hello. It works? Yeah, perfect. Well, with your uh, permission, can I put here the book? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is just a book I've just... Uh, published one month ago about what I'm going to explain, okay? It's going to call, it's called Armas de Seducción Masives in Spanish and explains how uh, contemporary terrorists all around the world are seducing young people from all around the world in order to commit terrorist crimes and activities, okay? So, I mean, most of my explanation is about the book. Um, okay, can I have the presentation? Um, it's uh, the... Yeah, okay, perfect. Great. Okay, I think I'm missing... Okay, I'm going to start with this one. Um, I, I really need your collaboration in this presentation, okay? So I really want to make it very interactive because I'm, I think I'm going to learn more from you than you for me in some cases. But what would you say about this image? I mean, come on, what are the... the, the... Fun, okay? What else? Huh? Hair, yeah, what else? Multi-ethnic, what else? Come on, let's go and see words. Fun, multi-ethnic. Ah? Come on, right, yeah, of course. What else? Yeah, it's, can we see they are like hipsters, even? Yeah, it might be, why not? Uh, I mean, would you say that, uh, I mean, this image is related with, I mean, it would, we're talking about like a brand of a, of a company 
would you say that the values added to those brands are positive or negative? Negative. Negative? Positive. Who thinks negative? Who thinks positive? Positive, okay. <laughs> uh, well, this is um, an ISIS campaign aimed to the United States. It was released on November 2016. November 2016. I think it was the 26th, November 2016. I mean, in a context where there were a lot of debate about the racial integration with the Afro-American population, um, you know, about the crisis of the, of the institutions. So ISIS released a video showing this. You know, we are integrating people, we are young people, uh, the video was, of course, released in English. They were discussing the, the petrodollar system. They were talking. They were talking about all the issues that matter to the young Americans. I mean, anything, and they didn't talk a lot about. They didn't say any word about religion. We're talking about this. I mean, this is the new way terrorist groups are seducing and are presenting themselves to the population. And this is a global message. I mean, this is not only happening in Iraq, Syria, Morocco. This is happening here. And this is the way terrorists present themselves. Of course, this campaign was released through all social networks. I mean, not the hidden network or no, no. This was in, this video was in YouTube, Google, Twitter, Facebook, and anything hidden. I mean, this is a. I mean, this is not only only one example. I mean, this is a constant. This is a um, um, a clear strategy that ISIS started in July 2014 until now, and they're constantly uh, displaying a narrative. Perfectly, you know, aim to seduce young generations all around the world, not Syria and Iraq, but all around the world, including America. They drink our drinks, they drink Pepsi, they have our cards, nice Ford. I mean, all these, all these images are from ISIS videos. I'm not, I mean, open sources, uh, primary sources. I'm not inventing anything. They drive nice, uh, trucks, Ford in this case. They use Apple in their computers. They do scuba diving. Why not? I mean, the caliphate is something fun. They make, you know, sports, adventures. It's not about going to pray in the mosque with, you know, like Bin Laden used to do, you know, in a hiding cave in Afghanistan. Who wants to be that? No, come on. Go scuba diving and play with the Mac. That's and being Pepsi. And of course, you can take care of little children in Raqqa. I mean, what can you tell me something about the face of this guy? Does he look like Bin Laden or like Ayman al-Sawahiri or something like that? You know who is this who is this person? Anyone knows? He's pretty famous. Oh, sorry. He's Abu Yusuf al-Australi. He's a former surfer from Australia. And he's taking care of children, of the little children in the hospital of Raqqa. I mean, if you read his uh, biography, he used to be a playboy. He used to drink. He was cheating his uh, girlfriend. He has a lot of girlfriends in Australia. And suddenly, he went to take care of children of the, in the Islamic State, in Raqqa. I mean, he's not killing somebody or throwing homosexuals from a roof. He's talking the same cultural language that all of us. I mean, ISIS is presenting itself not only in the same cultural language, but they are presenting themselves as an NGO that makes a lot of sense to the global generation. I mean, and this is important to understand. And of course, I mean, you, you, uh, this is the what the Islamic State pretends to say. I mean, they, when they say that they are a state, they really make a big effort to say that they are a state. So this is an image of when they talk about the the police of the Islamic State. They show like this uh, 
super fancy software to detect the crimes, like yes, like a CSI, like Grissom or Oratio in Miami. They use like the same techniques. Of course, it's fake. Of course, this is uh, post-truth. Of course, this is fake news. But you know, we are in a world that doesn't matter the reality. What matters are the perceptions. Daesh is creating this perception. And of course, it's, the caliphate is something family-oriented. Came here with your children, ate ice creams in the amusement parks. So this is a global message. This is seducing people in US, in America, in Spain, in Morocco, all around the world. This is the biggest threat, the mass seduction threat of the Islamic State. And it's not, I mean, and this is something that sooner or later any other violent extremist group is going to copy from the Islamic State because it's really working. 35,000 people from 100 different countries, according to UN data, have joined Islamic State in three years. Those figures, you know, Al-Qaeda didn't uh, obtain these figures ever. And, you know, Al-Qaeda, I mean, basically it's a travel agency, moving people around the world to do jihad in Algeria, in Bosnia, in Afghanistan. I mean, in three years, with this kind of communication, with this narrative, ISIS has seduced uh, 35,000 people from 100 different countries. Some of them, even they are not related with Arab background or Muslim culture ever, ever. Okay, you know who is this guy? Well, I mean, uh, well, uh, no, well, well, I mean, I'm, that, let, 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 I'm gonna make a different question. Would you be surprised if you find this guy now in uh, in a McDonald's here in New York Avenue? I mean, will you find like some? I mean, will you say that he is a normal guy? Yes or not? Yeah. Will you find this kind of people in your own countries? Yeah, might be he, your son, your neighbor, your student. Yes? Well, yeah, this is the guy who drove the van in Barcelona the other day. I mean, does he look like a terrorist? No. Is he wearing a, a shila, a, you know, a door long dress, wearing a beer? Uh, is he a, an imam of a mosque? No. I mean, those are the people of, of the attack of Barcelona the other day. I mean, the beach, you know, with nice... Look, I mean, <laughs> this, this is the Islamic State. Uh, AK-47 branded like a Louis Vuitton bag. This is the profile of one of the terrorists of, of Barcelona. I mean, it's something that is about culture. It's about seducing people with sentiments. I mean, it's a kind of mixture. He can be the, 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 per, the, the main character of a video game. Or, uh, you know, or, you know, of, of uh, Mission Impossible, something like that, the character of a film. But obviously, I mean, they, they are not presenting themselves, you know, praying in the middle of the desert or the imams in the mosque. No, this is contemporary. This is postmodern. And this is <laughs> aimed to seduce people all around the world. Okay, so how the how Islamic State has distributed these messages? Uh, well, since, um, two, since January 2014 until, well, today, they have distributed more than 1,300 videos on social media, like these ones. 1,300. I mean, this is more like the White House, the Pentagon, the United Nations. I mean, half of the resources of the Islamic State is communicate, seduce people all around the world. Uh, segmentation. They have segmented the messages. They have created 39 global producers for in, uh, 
audiovisual producers to create different messages from different audiences. So they are doing marketing segmentation, like like the most uh, important you know companies uh, all around the world. Um, they are using language segmentation, not only geographical segmentation, but uh, language segmentation. Um, I mean, it's true that almost uh, 80% of the videos of Islamic State are in Arabic, so the main target of their, of their messages are, of course, North Africa and the Gulf States, but we see that 20% of the, of the videos are in, the, in other languages. Those other languages are 33% in English, 24% in Russian, 22% in French, German, Somali, Turkish, blah, 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 blah. The first video in Spanish was released yesterday. The first video in Spanish ever of the Islamic State. But you, you see, I mean, these audiences in English, they are talking to a global audience. And they have created a net of own media. Uh, the own media of ICE, that they include a, a department of press release, a department of infographics, a newsletter, uh, magazines in different in five different languages, which Dabik in uh, is not Dabik is not working anymore. It's in English, Dara Islam, French, Istok, Russian, Constantini, Turkish, and Rumaya. Rumaya is the main magazine of ISIS now. It's in English. Uh, Al Nabah. Uh, look at the style of this. Uh, I mean, if I if I don't say you that this is like an ISIS magazine, and if you go to the airport and you go to Hudson uh, and you see these magazines, will you be surprised? I mean, suppose that you don't know this is an ISIS magazine. Will you be like surprised? I mean, no, this is our same cultural language. Look what they do when they, when they make a publication for the Arab countries. They make al Naba, which looks like the magazines in the Arab world. This is cultural segmentation. This is playing with aesthetics. A news agency, super smart. I mean, trying to say, okay, we make like a propaganda and then we make our own news agency that doesn't look like propaganda. So once again, the matter of perceptions. The, I mean, the AMAC ma uh, magazine, the AMAC news agency, it doesn't look like a, pro a propaganda tool of, of ISIS. It looks like an independent agency. So I mean, you have to be very aware or you have to really know that this is not an independent ma uh, news agency because the images are not like uh, edited or are, I mean, like are raw, raw images from but with the frame of ISIS, and you have your own application where you can download the products. It's a very savvy element. A radio station, website, is not working anymore. Yeah, the visual producers in all Iraq and Syria, but also in Yemen, I mean, all these countries. And then the thematic segmentation. What I mean with thematic segmentation? ISIS is talking about four different things, only about four different things. They have only four different. They are talking, uh, they are showing interviews with terrorists from all around the world. They are showing battle scenes. I mean, ISIS showing himself as a powerful army able to defeat any other army in the world. And they are showing positive uh, governan uh, governance Im uh, images or messages. I mean, showing themselves as a, as a state, as a modern modern state. I mean, not as an old, middle-aged uh, caliphate. No, as a modern state like U.S. or like Trinidad and Tobago, for example. I'm going to talk about that later. And then another part of the videos are violence as, as a spectacle that are, you know, killing hostages, basically. Uh, well, I'm going to start with Daesh as a social movement. Daesh has shown its... You, I mean, first one question. You know how many times I, uh, the leader of ISIS has appeared in the videos? We have talked that ISIS has released 1,400 videos in three years. Do you know how many times appeared Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in those videos? One. One. How many times appeared Bin Laden and al-Sawahari in the videos of al-Qaeda? All, <laughs> basically. <laughs> you know, but 
they are talking to the global audience. I mean, and I mean, what is the main goal? I mean, what is, do you think that they are going to seduce? This is a postmodern millennial movement. So they are using young people from all around the world or people from all around the world to spread the message because ISIS itself, they know that their main leader is not credible. So they don't want to present themselves as a hierarchical institution. They want to present themselves as, I mean, they have, uh, they have sort of like 800 people from different countries, uh, including, and now I'm going to talk directly about Latin America, but I mean, this is, we are talking all the time about Latin America, about America, about Europe. We're talking about a global phenomenon that is affecting, of course, Latin America. Including, uh, for, uh, there are five people from Latin America in those videos. Abu Said al-Mujahir, Trinidad and, from Trinidad and Tobago, with his three kids. Abu Abdullah from Trinidad and Tobago. Abu Khalid from Trinidad and Tobago. And Abu Abderrahman al-Trinidadi from Trinidad and Tobago. And uh, Bastian Alexis Vázquez, which is a Chilean. He appears in one of the first videos of ISIS. And then, I mean, if we talk in Latin, Latin Ibero-American uh, broad, the next one will be like our uh, our Spanish citizen, Mohamed Yassin Agran Pérez, that appeared yesterday in a video of that. He's a Spanish citizen that is in that. Those are the five people who, uh, the six people, the six, six speaking, uh, I mean, the, the six citizens that speak Spanish in the videos of guys. Or not Spanish, I mean, from Latin America, like Spain. Um, so, of course, I mean, DICE is doing a campaign. Also, I mean, although the campaign is global, they are also making segmentation to seduce people from Latin America and the Caribbean. So, this is not something that, as I said before, is not happening only in Iraq and Syria. All of us are vulnerable, including our countries. Uh, when I talk about DICE as a victorious army, uh, I, if you see, I mean, all the, the videos, how, I mean, how those videos are framed, I mean, what, what do you think about this video? I mean, which is something interesting for you about this video? About this image? This is the way they present the battles. It looks like a... Yeah, and especially about a... Video game Call of Duty. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a way of presenting battles that it's... It's cool. I mean, the guys we've seen from Barcelona, they used to play this all the time. So DICE is not... This is the way they are seducing people around the world. And that are, are the same video games that people in Latin America are playing. The most popular video game in Buenos Aires is the same, is the most popular video game in Raqqa. Because this is a global Western culture that is spread all over the world. Uh, the social contract, this is super important. And, uh, that is presenting itself as a government that is giving public services to the Sunni population in Iraq and Syria. Of course, this is fake news. Of course, this is not really happening. Of course, they are inefficient, they are corrupt, they are violent, they are not doing good governance. They are the, the only ones that are trying to show that they are doing good governance. So Daesh is a populist movement in Iraq and Syria saying that they are doing good governance. So they're going to pay attention to the importance not only of, of doing good governance, but of showing that we are doing good governance. Okay? Uh, this is the Grissom or the Oratio of Daesh. He's the man in charge of, you know, the scientific police. Um, one, and this is, uh, it's also, no, this is all the public services that they show they are releasing in the region of, of, uh, well, in Iraq, for example, look, they show how they keep, uh, the, the, the road, the, the roads, the maintaining of the roads, the traffic, electricity, health, water, cleaning, 
judiciary system, education, charity, local alliances, communication, agriculture, commerce, building. So they, they are taking care of a lot of issues. <laughs> so this is important. And then finally, the, the, the last thematic of ISIS is violence as a spectacle. You will say, I mean, how can you seduce people by killing hostages, by, you know, uh, doing like beheadings or by, you know, throwing someone from a roof? Because they are framing those, that kind of violence as the same cultural language of the audiences. Once again, they are talking the same cultural language. Uh, so, for example, this is a video of, uh, in the top are videos of Daesh. And in the downside is the, like films, real, real films. So ISIS is, uh, mm, um, I'll say, um, this, oh, uh, oh my God. Um, how you say this film of um, Homeland, sorry. ISIS Homeland, ISIS Saw, the, the, the Saw films of terror, they are constantly talking in the same language of Saw, they are copying the scenes, they are copying the, the, the scripts, they are copying everything, because it's the way their audiences have fun and they, they, they consume entertainment. Uh, ISIS Call of Duty, ISIS Mortal Kombat, ISIS Call of Duty constantly. I mean, the references to Call of Duty and Mortal Kombat and Grand Theft Auto are constant. ISIS Person of Interest, ISIS Matrix, ISIS American Sniper, ISIS V of Vendetta. I mean, uh, according to my study of the 1,300 videos of ISIS, 50% of the videos of, uh, of violence are absolutely uh, copied from the images of the, of the products that our children in, not, in Europe, in Latin America, consume and have fun every day. So this is the way that ISIS is seducing people around the world. But as, as I said in the beginning, uh, they are doing a specific campaigns in Latin America, especially in, uh, in, the, in the Caribbean. But this is a global phenomenon that I think it has only started. And you know there are like the roots or the gasoline is in the region. If some other groups start to copy what ISIS is doing, the risk of terrorist movements in Latin America could be, you know, a real fact. And I will be more than happy to solve your questions. And okay, perfect. <laughs> Thank you. See. <laughs> morning. Uh, I would like to start expressing my gratitude to the Hudson Institute and to Ambassador Jaime Darenbrum for this invitation. I am going to speak about uh, Venezuela and uh, uh, and more than I am the, the main part of my presentation is about political violence, but I am going also to speak about terrorism. I start with two, two quotations. Uh, the first one from Nicolás Maduro, the second one from Ernesto Guevara. Maduro said two months ago, what we fail to achieve with votes, we will do with weapons. Maduro was trained in Cuba, he spent more than a year in uh, a, common, a, a communist youth school in, in Cuba. And uh, that's why 
the second quotation is from, from Ernesto Guevara. El che Guevara said, hate as a factor of a struggle, the intransigent hatred of the enemy, which, which pushes beyond the limitation of the human being and make it an effective, violent, selective, and cold killing machine. This killing machine has been working in Venezuela in the last months, but it started long ago. Because the history of Venezuela is a history of political violence. In our war of independence, one third of the population died. From the beginning of the 19th century to the second half of the 20th century, the, the violence was the usual way to reach power and to retain power in Venezuela. We have to wait till 1964 in order to see, for the first time, an elected president ending, ending his term of office. And Romulo Betancur, elected in 1958, gave power to his successor, Raúl Leoni, elected five years later by the Venezuelan people in free elections. From 1959 to 1999, nine presidents in a row were elected by the Venezuelan people. Nevertheless, the violence was still there. From 1959 to 1970, the 60s decade, there were several failed military coups against the democratic government, and the radical left chose to follow the Cuban example, and uh, we had uh, a guerrilla warfare for almost 10 years with a lot of uh, violence, of course, and uh, it ended uh, by political negotiation in the starting of Rafael Caldera as the third president of this role of elected president. In 1992, uh, the violence come, came back when then Lieutenant Colonel Hugo Chavez intended and failed in a coup d'etat and there were more than 400 people uh, lose their, li their life in this attempt. And as a paradox, six years, six years later, the same Hugo Chavez is elected Venezuelan president by the people of Venezuela in a free election and in the middle of an economic and social and political crisis. With Chavez started a drift of authoritarianism and a step of, uh, by step the violence was every day more present in the Venezuelan political life. The kind of government with the appearance of, of, the, of a democracy was the end of the rule of law, the end of the check and balances, and the separation of power. And what is more important, it was a time of intolerance. Chavez divided Venezuelan people in two sides, the good and the bad ones, revolutionary and bourgeois, patriots and traitors. In 2004, there was a coup against Chavez. It failed. Uh, elections, and there were a lot of elections under Chavez, 
were rigged, but one has to say that uh, Chavez has the major, uh, for uh, many of his time, the majority of uh, the Venezuelan people support. And the elections were rigged, but if this election had been free, he should have won this election too. More than 30 political leaders were disqualified from holding political offices, then disqualified for running for, for, for office. Uh, a handful of politicians and judges were in jail. Uh, time by time, we saw the uh, lack of freedom, of press freedom, human rights violations, paramilitary government-sponsored bands called first Circulos Bolivarianos and then Colectivos, a very, very huge corruption. Uh, corruption is, was not new in the Venezuelan history, but the size of this phenomenon was very, very impressive. Uh, and mainly because there were no controls against corruption. The parliament has no, uh, did, uh, had no investigative power. The general account office doesn't work. The press was censored. Therefore, uh, the corruption was free. And it began with an excessive Cuban interference. Uh, a Cuban interference who allowed some people to speak that Venezuela is a kind of Cuban colony. Then came Nicolás Maduro. Uh, he came in the middle of, when, when Chávez died, in the middle of an economic crisis. This crisis started before Chávez's death and before the oil prices dropped. Therefore, the crisis is not only the consequence of the oil situation, is a consequence of an economic model which failed. Maduro was elected with a, a very narrow margin, 1.4%, uh, some kind of 140,000 votes, and uh, the opposition objected this election, but neither the, the electoral authorities, neither the courts ever heard the opposition uh, objections. And corruption increased a lot. And uh, for the first time in, long, long, in a long, long time, uh, we started to have a scarcity of basic goods. In February 2014, there was an student and popular uprising, and 40 people, most young, young people, uh, their, lost their life. A practice in, initiated by Chavez was followed by Maduro. It was to, to void, to empty the contempt of opposition electoral victories in elections. For instance, when a governor or a mayor of a city was elected yeah, from the opposition, uh, all the, the constitutional powers uh, for governorship and mayorship were stripped, and the money, the budget too. Uh, there was a constitutional referendum in 2007. Chavez wanted to change the constitution he said that the constitution of 1999 was the best of the world, but uh, eight years later he changed, he tried to change this constitution in order to establish 
a socialist government in Venezuela. It was his first electoral defeat. Uh, the no in the referendum uh, uh, beat the C, uh, which was the people, the, the, the answer uh, Chavez was asking. And, uh, but what happened after, after that? Of the 40 reforms of the Constitution, 39 were put inside the uh, legal order in Venezuela by normal laws approved by Parliament. That means against the Constitution. But all what the people say no was then uh, uh, introduced to the, our legal framework. In Venezuela, there are now 450 political prisoners convicted by courts. Among them, some are very famous, Leopoldo Lopez, that you see here in, in the picture, uh, Antonio Ledesma, who is the mayor of the city of Caracas, uh, 13 mayors, uh, opposition mayors of important city are or in jail or in exile. And five days ago, the attorney general, which in Venezuela is appointed by the president as here in the United States, but is not a part of the cabinet. She was a Chavista loyalist, but uh, started to split and uh, five, he, she was fired, and uh, now, five days ago, she has to uh, go to exile because she was going to be uh, sent to jail. In 2016, the electoral, electoral authorities refused to hold a recall referendum. Uh, there were the signatures asking for the recall, but the Electoral Council says, no, it's not possible, we have no time, we have no money, and the regional elections were postponed with the same arguments. They say that in an economic crisis, there was a kind of luxury to have a, a spend money in elections while there were so many problems in uh, the economy. And uh, the last three years has been a time of economic, economic disaster, and at, uh, this year, 2017, is a year of political disarray. Oh, I forgot to. <laughs> As I have it here, I, I forgot all the... Okay. There we are. Okay. I have some graphics uh, from the Venezuelan economic evolution in the last times. Uh, they are well known, but they are very impressive. We have here the black market. You can buy a US dollar if you have the good contacts and pay 10 bolivares. If you have not so good contacts, you pay 200 bolivares. But if you have not contact at all, you will pay 16,000 bolivares. Then the best business in the world is to get preferential foreign currency from the Central Bank, and then sell it in the black market. It's better business than selling drugs or heroin or whatever. Inflation, we have uh, a worldwide record in this moment, uh, very near of hyperinflation. The gold 
and foreign currency reserve for the central bank dropped from 53 is 43 billion dollars to 10 billion dollars the gdp in the last three years lost one third of its value and as you see the last figure is for for 2017 and we are in the middle of the year it, it's absolutely sure that this figure is going to increase and we have uh, at the end of the year almost uh, 50% less of GDP. Uh, the food scarcity you have seen in, in newspapers and on TV, people eating from garbage and the, the scarcity, the, the level of, of the scarcity is now 80%, is, was 80% in 2016 and it's higher right now. In April 2017, this year, a judgment of the Supreme Court deprived the National Assembly of all its constitutional power. And it started a foremost popular uprising with a toll of 129 deaths, 5,000 people were arrested, 2,000 were injured, and for 1,050 prosecuted, mainly, uh, all of them civilians, but mainly by military courts. You can see scenes of violence. And here, these four pictures are, are very interesting. The gentleman in the first one is Julio Borges. He is a speaker of the National Assembly, assaulted here by colectivos chavistas. The lady in the second one is Gabriela Arellano, congresswoman. Congress, congressman uh, Juan Requesens here, and the, the fourth one is congressman Carlos Paparoni. And there are a lot of more, more pictures of aggression of the order, ordinary people and of political leaders that we have began to start with a link with terrorism. In this month, in the last month, uh, there have been two very interesting political events. In July 16, the opposition called for a referendum, an informal referendum, because uh, the electoral authorities denied any collaboration with this popular consultation. But in this informal referendum, seven million and a half Venezuelans went to the polls and voted against Nicolás Maduro. Fifteen day later, days later, uh, the government called for an election, an election of a constituent assembly. They violated the constitution in the form of calling of this election, and there was a massive fraud. Uh, independent turnout estimation where about three million people went to vote, mostly of them forced the civil servant uh, and so on. And the official result was 8 million votes. It's a fraud of 5 million votes. It has been said that it's the most important fraud in the history of Latin America. I go to terrorism, I will come back to the political violence. Uh, in Venezuela, we had terrorism uh, as a way of taking power 
between in, in the in the in, in the 60s. It ended as as we remember a minute ago uh, at the end of the decade. But what we had from the beginning of the 21st century is state-sponsored terrorism. First of all, these violent paramilitary group, groups acting against protesters, killing and injuring people, destroying uh, private property, and uh, controlling part of the city and part of the country. Part of the city of Caracas are ruled by colectivos, and an uh, important part of the Venezuelan territory, especially in the Colombian border, are controlled by uh, irregular bands, which are a mix of Chavistas from Venezuela and guerrilla from the FARC and now from the ELN of Colombia. There are two uh, links with international terrorist group. I don't know Javier Ifais is, is president of Venezuela. I have no information about that. But uh, first, uh, and a very special link with Colombian terrorists. Chavez uh, made arrangement with uh, the FARC leadership and to, with the ELN. FARC is Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia. ELN is Ejército de Liberación Nacional. Uh, and uh, is a terrorist and a drug trafficker. They are terrorists and drug traffickers in the same, playing the, the, the both games. Uh, Venezuela became uh, a part of the drug trafficking, uh, a very important uh, part of the drugs who came to North America and to Europe goes through Venezuela and with the complicity of Venezuelan authorities. There, was a, there were two special links with Iran, and uh, Venezuelan banks and Venezuelan companies were a way for Iranian uh, to avoid the United States sanctions. And uh, special links too with Hezbollah, uh, the Middle East uh, terrorist organization. W what was the, the concretion of this link. First of all, uh, the provision of safe haven and facilities for the FARC and the ELN in the, in the, in the Colombian border. There were uh, training camps, there were uh, hospitals of the FARC, there was places where they, they uh, were safely safe against the Colombian army. The second is providing false documentation, Venezuelan passports. Uh, you may have seen in, on TV, uh, CNN has uh, uh, covered this, this situation, that in the Venezuelan embassy in Baghdad, uh, a, a Venezuelan passport was sold for $10,000. Uh, that was absolutely documented. People who did that were never punished, but that was one side of, of the problem. The other side is giving passport to terrorists. Four days ago, a Syrian terrorist was arrested in London, in his airport in London, with a Venezuelan passport. The guy uh, uh, didn't speak Spanish. And, uh, and when you go to Venezuela, it, ha it happened once to me, 
there was a, a man in my side, and he was uh, filling the immigration form, and he asked me in a very bad English, not as bad as mine, but nearly that, and he asked me to help him. Uh, and they said, well, because he don't speak Spanish. And he has a Venezuelan passport as a Venezuelan-born citizen. I don't know if he was a terrorist or not, but he has the passport and so that. And uh, there was help uh, of uh, in financial transactions, laundering money, money laundering for the FARC and for Hezbollah, and diplomatic protection of the Venezuelan embassy or the Venezuelan forces in uh, transport documents, etc. What is coming next in Venezuela? Uh, regional elections were scheduled finally for October this year. Uh, there was a big discussion in Venezuelan opposition about if participating or not in the election. The majority of the political parties decided to participate in this election, even with the prospect of a big fraud. Uh, and a, a very important question with all this violence is to know is if there is a possibility of civil war in Venezuela. Uh, for now, what we have is a war against civilians, because if you want to have a civil war, you, have, you must have two sides armed. And in Venezuela, that's not the case. Even that uh, recently, uh, several uh, army facilities were robbed, and uh, war weapons were steal, and nobody knows where they are right now. But, for instance, the, in the, this popular uprising in Caracas and other cities street was a pacific one. You can see the first picture remains the Tiananmen Square in Beijing. It's an old lady in front of an armored vehicle. And then what? The violence from the opposition was uh, catching the gas canister and throwing them back, or throwing stones, or playing musical instrument in the front of the National Guard, uh, or uh, weapons, very imaginative, but very inefficient when you try to defeat a regular army. What comes next? We continue with that. If the Maduro government is still there, murdering, imprisoning, torturing people, as uh, Luis Almagro, the general secretary of the organization American State, uh, has said in, uh, in the U.S. Senate in a hearing uh, on Venezuela, he said, behind every detainee, every political prisoner, behind every person tortured and killed, there is someone institutionally responsible in Venezuela. Uh, what, which are the possible scenarios, and I finish with that. Uh, the first one is an open military dictatorship. It may be with Maduro or without Maduro. Uh, I, I don't think that Maduro have ever read Talleyrand, but Talleyrand said that the only thing you cannot do with a bayonet is 
sit on it. And this is what Maduro is making. His only and important support are the military. And uh, military are loyal to the government until the day they uh, make a coup and the government is out. And uh, there are a lot of rumors that Maduro is no longer useful to narco-traffic generals and he's going to be uh, deposed. The second scenario, the good one, is that international pressures, international sanctions, a street demonstration in Venezuela, and military unrest lead to a transition government and general election. And the third scenario, that the majority of the Venezuelan leadership and the Venezuelan citizens doesn't want, is a foreign military intervention. That's really like foolish, but you perhaps heard President Trump speaking about all, saying that all the solutions were open, even the military ones. Well, we will see. Listo. Our speakers are ready to some questions. And the first one is that lady. Yep. Please uh, give us your name and affiliation. Eric Herrick, no affiliation. Um, the first man's presentation really just sort of reminded me of. You sound up, if you don't mind. Why, why, it would yeah. remind me of why a lot of people agree that Donald Trump wanted to build a wall. But the second guy, I'm not really sure what that, oh, except for the later part, had to do with Venezuela. But all these Middle Eastern terrorists, that's what they are, are coming into the West and now Latin America. Don't you think it's a good idea for countries to close their borders and, and, and be more careful who we're letting in. And for the gentleman from Venezuela, I have heard that Venezuela has the largest oil reserves and the second largest gold reserves. I've also heard that Chavez's daughter is a, either the richest person or the richest woman in Venezuela, and then people are hunting pigeons down on the street. So where is all this money going to? Oh, and also for the second guy, who is funding ISIS? Where are they getting the money to have all these campaigns everywhere? I have never really heard anyone in the media or in the government address that. Uh, okay, uh, thanks for your questions. Uh, it was a pleasure to you. For me? Yeah. For me or for... No, terrorista. Whoever. Okay, very, very, very brief. Two questions. First to the first one, um, the financing. Uh, well, I mean, Islamic State it's in the richest regions of, uh, of Syria. For example, in the region of Al-Hayr, uh, Der el-Sor, uh, or the valley of Der el-Sor in the, in the south, uh, west, no, in the southeast of, of Syria, in the border with Iraq, is where all the major field, um, gas and petrol fields are in Syria. And they, they've been under control of that. And they are selling to, uh, I mean, that they are selling that gas and that, uh, Oil. I mean, that's the main revenue of, of, of ISIS. The sec, and, uh, regarding the, uh, maybe I didn't explain correctly my presentation. I mean, regarding the board, the borders, I mean, I'm, uh, I mean, those, the five, uh, for example, the five people from, uh, from,
con Trinidad San Tobago, they are not Middle Easterns going to Trinidad San Tobago. They are people from Trinidad San Tobago. I mean, the, the, the boys that attack in Spain, they have Spanish national passports. I mean, they are not Middle Easterns going to Spain. Uh, the, I mean, even, I can say, I mean, most of the people from the taxi, no, 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 they parents, they parents, they parents. Well, I mean, and when do you put the, 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 the feel of, I mean, the, the point of the generation? I mean, it's, uh, here I think we are like four people who are not from U.S. and I mean, he's from Spain, from Spain, I don't know where he's from, Venezuela. Venezuela, and from Costa Rica, and I mean, I think if I, my kids study here, and I, I mean, where do you put the, 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 the point in a, in a generation not to come to a country? And, and what I'm saying is that there is a, um, a phenomenon that is very unique, very new, and very intriguing, that is how this violent and extremist group are seducing naturals from countries all around the world. And this is something that, unfortunately, uh, is not that easy that control borders. Because even if you close all the borders, and if you, I mean, even if you, if you, you can be right, I can't agree with you, but the problem, the facts show that it wouldn't stop many of the terrorist attacks we've seen in, uh, in Europe or in other countries in the last months because they are people with the passports, I mean, even from second, third generation, but they are naturals of, the, of these countries. I mean, they are young people. As I, as I saw you, they, are, they look like us, they are, they are like us. This is the most intriguing part of all this, how they are seducing young citizens from the countries. I mean, the case of, the case of Trinidad and Tobago is very, I mean, it's very simplified, I mean, it's very clear. Those guys, they've never traveled to Iraq and Syria. They've been all, they have been, been living all their life in Trinidad and Tobago. So if you say, okay, let's go and close the borders from the Middle Easterns to go to Trinidad and Tobago, make nothing because they are, they've been radical, they have, they are radic getting radicalized in their own countries. So this is the challenging part of, of all this phenomenon. It's about the Chavez doctor. Uh, this is Maria Gabriela Chavez. She currently lives in New York. She's a member of the Venezuelan delegation to the UN. She is said to be one of the richest women in the world, $1 billion. And she said that she has some means, more than her salary as a Venezuelan diplomat. She doesn't go very often to the, to the delega delegation office. But she said that she gained all this money uh, working in Avon, going to door to door, selling Avon products. Tarek El Aizami is a name that not very usual in Venezuela, more than in Javier's presentation, is the Venezuelan vice president. He's, he has a lot of links with Middle East. The Middle East is born in Venezuela, in the case you were working, you were talking about, but his father was from Syria. And Tarek uh, Al-Saimi uh, is very linked to drug trafficking, and he, he, he was sanctioned by the Department of the Treasury Department of the United States. And $500 million were freezed in his accounts and properties in the U.S. $500 million. Is that the goods he has in the States? Uh, and you can suppose that as a 
premises man, he must have uh, bank accounts in other countries. But $500 million were freezed here in the United States. Very impressive. On this side... Uh, my name is Micaela from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Um, I'm interested now in Luis Ortega's trip to Brazil and the, her accusations of linking Maduro and Diostela Cabello and all the leader party members to the Odebrecht scandal and Petrobras. And coming back to talking about um, good governance and being able to use uh, like laws that are already put in place to kind of start litigating against and prosecuting these people, do you think that this would be a good way to start legal proceedings into the corruption of the Venezuelan government by using the already created Lava Jato um, case against these people. Thank you, Michaela. Uh, Luis Ortega has a lot of information, but because she was with, with the regime uh, from the beginning, and he know, she knows everything. And uh, that's a reason because she, she is in danger because she knows everything. And that is like the mafia. If you violate the omerta, the rule of silence, you are risking your life. But what she has a proof, because Odebrecht, the, the Brazilian prosecutors, give, gave to the Venezuelan prosecutors all the information about Odebrecht. And uh, in, this, in this information, it is said that a company owned by, by friends of Nicolás Maduro uh, in Mexico uh, has all the contracts of food importation, and that the Spanish company owned by two cousins of uh, Diosdado Cabello, who is the, the chairman of the Constituent Assembly, uh, uh, received a contract from uh, a, 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 a payback from Odebrecht of $100 million. And that's the point of the iceberg. Luis Ortega has a lot of more information. Anyone? No, there was another part of the question, no? Yes. All the information. The problem with corruption is information. And until now, the information was make, comes mainly from defectors or from the press. And this one is a very, very big defector. Very well. On this side, yes. I'm a fellow at the National Endowment for Democracy and also a judge from Guatemala. And I would like to know if you have any information about any links between the gangs and organized um, terrorism groups. Because some of you talk about the problems of the region, you know, a lot of corruption, weak institutions. So I think it's it's very dangerous that something can happen in, in that region. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, very brief. Great, great answer, great question. I mean, that's, that's one of the deals. I mean, it's not a chance that ISIS has born in the two most corrupt countries in, the, in, the, in Asia and Africa, which is Syria and Iraq. Iraq is considered the five most corrupt country in the world, and Syria is like the 14. But, I mean, this kind of uh, uprisings happens in places where the, 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 the confidence between citizens and institutions is absolutely broken. 
and where you know the feeling of uh, isolation between you know the delivery of public or, or well, the, the the feeling of the lack of delivery of public services. Uh, and this has happened. I mean, with this uh, situation, there are there are groups like violent and extremist groups such as ISIS with a very concrete narrative that they are very efficient in channelizing the the uh, social upset created by the corruption, bad governance, bad engagement with local tribes, whatever. Now, I just want to think in the region if there are some similar characteristics. And what could happen if a group with this infrastructure, with this intelligence, tries to channelize this level of frustration in the same way? I don't know if I'm asking the correct answer, but... Uh, may, maybe we will find like some common characteristics. And regarding the gangs, I mean the, the gangs, um, uh, possibly, I mean the gangs at some point they are like covering the space that where the state is not present, and they are even doing. I mean the, the gangs at the end of the day they are doing public, they are delivering public services. They are a, a source of cultural identity. And, uh, you know, they have all this aesthetic narrative that, you know, engages with the young audiences much better than the state. So I think we can put it, like, in a very similar sociological background. Yeah, I mean, if you see the pictures of the guys of Barcelona, I mean, it was very tricky, but if you say that they are part of a Mara in some country, I mean, you will believe me, because they look like the same. I would like to ask to add something. When a criminal organization became big, uh, it became a political actor. And there is a link uh, with crime and politics. And in Venezuela, we have seen that the colectivos are uh, sometimes political activists, but sometimes former criminals who continue their private activities, but under the protection of the state. And, you have to be very aware in Guatemala that that may happen if you, by any chance, have a government like ours. Very good. Yes. Wait for the uh, microphone. Sorry. Uh, Angel Sanfiliu. I'm just a private citizen. Uh, my question goes towards solutions, focusing mostly on Venezuela, but I'd like to open up the question to the entire panel. How do you dismantle an $8 billion multinational drug distribution network that uses 2,000 generals. In the U.S., we have 50, plus a National Guard network to grow internationally. Well, uh, I mean, does anyone have the answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if anyone yes, would, there yeah, there is an answer, which is, among other things, I mean, there is not one answer, there are a number of answers. Uh, well, first of all, there's the responsibility of the governments and of the countries, and uh, then there is the international responsibility and the regional cooperation, the international cooperation. I mentioned FATF, F-A-T-F, the Financial Action Task Force, which is extremely effective as far, I mean, they do not, uh, they do not have 
operational powers. They don't have the police, but they do have the means to find out who is doing what in that respect, and they do it very effectively. And uh, that's an initiative which was taken by the G7 some years back. There are a number of countries, not all of the countries of the world belong to that, but if you follow, I mean, just Google FATF, you will find a number of recommendations which are, which are extremely to the point in terms of fighting precisely against that sort of problem. This is not all the answer, it's part of the answer. The FATF is one of the elements which is being used by the United Nations Counterterrorism Committee in the fight against terrorism. And I can't tell you, because I, I was part of it at one point, point, point in my life, they are extremely effective in finding out, again, who is doing what, which is the amount of the money there. And at the same time, the Fatah sends the recommendations to the government. And the other day, it's up to the governments to decide what to do. And this is one of the problems we're facing now, now here. This is why we need international sanctions, cooperation, and pressure. But uh, this is, these are the ways. The, the Treasury Department, the, the Department of the Treasury here in this country is extremely effective in that respect. Extremely effective in that respect. And I'm convinced that um, with all the sanctions they've been putting right now, for instance, on the Venezuelan uh, uh, Madurian uh, people, they are, I mean, at the end of the day, they might be effective, they might be able to uh, cut short the activities of that people because as uh, as uh, Mr. Tare pointed out, they are living on hundreds of millions of dollars which have been uh, acquired in a rather illicit way. So that cooperation of international and national uh, entities and, and organizations would be able to not to solve the whole problem because when then we have to think about uh, Angola, for instance. Angola, well, they just had an election and uh, there are a number of problems. Angola is extremely corrupt extremely corrupt. You cannot. South Africa, I mean, you go on and on and on and on. But uh, if we look into the Western world, be it uh, Europe and the United States, plus a significant number of nations in the, in the Western Hemisphere and some Asian countries as well, you can find that there is the will, there is the power, and there is uh, the possibilities of starting. Well, not starting because the fight is already there, but been uh, partially successful in that fight. But again, uh, I don't have all the answers. Nobody does, actually. Uh, speaking strictly for the Venezuelan situation, uh, there is a cartel in Venezuela whose name is Cartel de los Soles. In Venezuela, the insignia for general are not stars, but sons. Cartel de los Soles, that means that there's a cartel of generals. But they are not, all the generals are not drug traffickers, and all the uh, military officers are not traffickers. Then it's not very difficult, and every, everyone knows, because when you have this kind of money, you don't hide it. Everyone knows who is who, is who in Venezuela. Senator uh, Marco Rubio said that Yudao Cabello, uh, the chairman of the National Constitutional Assembly, is the Pablo Escobar from Venezuela. And the names are known. And the way uh, that the cartel operates is well known too. And it's very easy to spot air, uh, airstrips in, in, the, in the border with Colombia. is the Llanos, is the plain. They are not very hidden. 
uh, one of the way that uh, uh, an Air Force officer is easy became easily a, a millionaire is only to allow uh, or to, to close their eyes from this time to this time in order that the planes uh, go over Venezuelan territory or in the Navy to suspend the patrols of the Navy or the Coast Guard in the, the state of Sucre in the east of the country. Are, uh, when the state is uh, a drug trafficker, uh, it's very difficult to, 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 to defeat it. But when you, the state decides to fight the drug trafficking, there, is a, there are a lot of things to do. One of them, as Ambassador uh, Javier Rupert is saying, uh, is international cooperation. One of the first things that uh, Chavez did as president is, was to spell from Venezuela the DEA because he said that there were all uh, imperialist, imperialist spies and there is no uh, kind of collaboration between the drugs uh, enforcement authorities in Venezuela with the DEA or with the European authorities. And this, that's not, you are not going to stop it, but uh, to, 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 it's possible to, to make them uh, the life very, very more difficult. One final question. Hi, I'm Emilio from the Vicente Ferrer Foundation. And my question is uh, for the guy who wrote the book about ISIS. It's like, how many channels ISIS can have in social media in Spain or in other countries? And also what the government is doing to prevent those channels and those content going to the young audience, more or less, is there any number? And also, is the things that we saw in Barcelona a few weeks ago, or last week, the attacks. So the pattern is going to be in groups, like the thing that we are seeing, attacking in group of friends, of guys who contact each other because they consume the same content, or people is going to do it alone, or isn't any, you know, pattern established for that? Thank you. Uh, yeah, very, very uh, fast also. Um, no, every campaign of, I mean, the, the infrastructure, the Media structure of, of, of DICE consists on 39 audiovisual producers, one radio, one uh, department of infographics, one department of news, one department of uh, um, musical channels, even the Nasheeds. I mean, it's like a very, very well prepared um, media infrastructure based on, I mean, any media, multimedia company that could be in the market. I mean, it's pretty professional. How they distribute this content? Every campaign consists more or less between eight, uh, 400. It's, I mean, most of the of this content is shared by Twitter and Telegram. Every campaign contains or is participated or is you know broadcast by 400 Twitter accounts created specifically only for distribute that campaign. They use bots and they make like, they tweet like between thousand thousand uh, five hundred messages in every campaign. They distribute a campaign every, I mean, a videos. Now they are distributing a video. I mean, uh, it's like two every, uh, one every two days, something like that. Uh, this is the, the numbers of, of, I mean, what they are, the, the, the technological companies, what they are doing, they are doing a lot. I mean, at the beginning when I started to do the research, the, it was like, I mean, the, you can, the links of the, of the videos were, I mean, you know, were able, 
uh, for months. Now, I mean, those links or those videos stays, uh, remain like for between two, four hours. That's the thing the companies take to, you know, to, 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 to catch that, uh, that. But at the same time, ISIS has a whole network of people working in uploading and doing, you know, uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, constantly, you know, creating new links. So it's like playing, uh, mouse and cat every time. And regarding the, the stereotypes, the, the problem or the challenge of this new kind of terrorism is that they don't follow a pattern. I mean, would, it would be an error to try to, you know, create like, this is the pattern of the new terror, the, of the terrorist. This is the, you know, to establish like, the problem of this is that it's very unpredictable. So you can find like, I mean, I'm, it's gonna fall only in the, in the, in the last two years. We have like a terrorist attack produced by a cell organized by ISIS, like the terrorist attack in Paris and in Brussels. I mean, there were like cells created by ISIS with tra trained people in Syria. They, you know, make these people travel to, to, to Europe. They have a structure. They have a weapons. I mean, like machine guns, sorry, um, AK-47s. They have explosives and they commit the terrorist attack. They have a, a net of buildings where they can hide after committing attack. So this is one uh, model. Then we have a model of a lonely wolf. People like the Westminster uh, attacker in London, someone that, you know, follows the instruction of ISIS in the in social media. They radicalize itself and then they commit attack and attack with a car and a knife that you can buy, a knife that you find in your house. And then you have a model like in Barcelona, which is like some lonely wolves that they gather together and there is something from outside that coordinates everything, but we don't have any evidence that the, the attack has been prepared in Syria and Iraq, like in Brussels and Paris. So I think it would be like an error to try to, you know, establish like models because, you know, this kind of terrorism is going to break all the time the models. So yes, we have to, to you know, to, to see the facts and see what's going on in every case because... Uh, we... Um... As I said before, it's quite, a, quite evident, quite obvious that the vast majority, the vast majority of the Muslim population around the world are not terrorists. But it's also quite evident that uh, the vast majority, if not to say all those who practice so-called Islamic terrorism, call themselves uh, faithful followers of, of, of the faith, of the Muslim faith. And um, this is something we have to take into account whenever we, t we consider the existence of, uh, of Muslim communities here and there. I mean, they are welcome. They, they've been welcome. In the case of Europe, it's quite obvious. In the case of Latin America, the Muslim communities have been uh, coming here for ages. No, it's not a recent phenomenon. I mean, whenever you go to any, uh, practically any Latin American country, you, you will find people who are called Turks, they are not Turks, they are Palestinians, Syrians, or Iraqis, but they've been there for generations. So that's, that's another, another fact which doesn't affect. But as far as those Muslim recent, or recently, uh, modern, uh, uh, Muslim generations, uh, communities, well, we have to take into account that the process of radicalization is, uh, is making headways there. And, uh, we have to count on them to count the vast majority of those, the members of those, of those communities who are not terrorists, 
We have to count on them in terms of intelligence, in terms of information, in terms of communication, just to find out exactly what is going on. After all, in the case of Barcelona, there was an Iman who was the one leading the effort. Uh, how was the Iman radicalized? We do not know. Whether it was through ISIS, the social media, whatever, he was radicalized. He was preaching something which, uh, wrongly in the name of Islam, was promoting violence. This is something we have to take into account just to make able to integrate those communities. And the second point is that uh, we do have, and this is a European uh, reflection, we do have to tell those communities that they are living there, they are welcome there, they're working there, they are well, uh, in general, they are well integrated, they go to schools, they, are, they enjoy all the social security advantages of the society and so on and so forth. But at the same time, they have to respect the local laws and constitutions. And from that viewpoint, I think that we should follow the American example. It's not to say that the United States is free from that sort of terrorism, but we have to remember that after all, September 11 was not organized by people living in the United States. They were foreigners. And the cases of Islamic terrorism, which have been taken, the few cases, very few cases, taking, taking place in the United States in the few years, are not significant from that viewpoint, are not significant because of the numbers, are not significant, among other things, because of the activity of the, of, the, of the authorities. But they are not significant because whoever is a Muslim living in the United States knows very well that uh, the full respect of their own beliefs is guaranteed by the Constitution, provided he respects the Constitution. This is something that is not happening, unfortunately, in... in uh, in Europe, uh, I mean, we have uh, in the United Kingdom, we have in France, we have in Belgium, areas of the population which are, from that viewpoint, three areas, which are uh, areas which are not being ruled by the civilian uh, laws of the country. And this is something we have to bear in mind. I wouldn't say that's the response, because as Javier Lesaca pointed out, there are a number of factors we have, different factors, but this is a significant part of the response. If they do not integrate according to the local laws, then we'll sooner or later we'll, we'll face uh, problems and threats, undoubtedly. Thank you very much uh, for having attended and sharing the time with us. We'll have many more conferences coming this year, and I'm sure uh, you'll be advised and um, you'll, you'll join us. Um, in, uh, I will suggest that um, we finish our program with a final round of applause to our...